0: this lesson which is entitled ecumenical babylon's fall we're going to meet a woman who is so old that she was born even before abraham was called out of ur of the chaldees but although ancient this woman is beautifully seductive to behold at least in the sense in which the world considers beauty because she has has had centuries worth of practice In using various types and forms of cosmetics, as well as facelifts, in order to cover up her true hideous identity. This woman is wise and she is well-knowledged in the ways of dealing with men. After all, she has had centuries of practice in learning how to draw them into her web of seductive deceit and to keep them imprisoned there. Ambition rules the heart of this woman because she has desired to reign supreme over this world from her very conception. And there have been times in Earth's history when she came very close to succeeding. She has strongly influenced political governments, often dominating and dictating to them her will, to which they have often, sometimes willingly and sometimes reluctantly, obeyed her. She has been paid great homage by literally millions of admirers who, in paying for her exorbitant services, have made her massively wealthy. This woman is fascinating, and she is intriguing, and she has attracted every type of man to grovel at her feet. However, for all of her external appeal, the woman is evil. Although there are very few of each century who have seen beneath her cosmetic mask and behind her seductive smile to her heart, which is as black as hell and as hard as stone, her hands are stained red with blood, and she has single-handedly sent more souls to hell than anyone short of Satan himself." She is, in fact, one of his greatest accomplishments. In chapter 17, we're going to learn about the judgment on religious Babylon, who is portrayed to us as this mysterious woman that I just described. She represents the vast international system of error and apostasy, which has its roots in the ancient city of Babel and in the satanic religion of Babylonianism, from which all false religions can find their origin. So we could call her Mother Babylon. Now the second Babylon, which we are going to discuss, and which will be judged by sovereign God, and we'll learn about its fall prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, is material Babylon. And we will discuss material Babylon in our next lesson on chapter 18. However, today we will be looking at mother Babylon. One is ecumenical Babylon and the other one is economic Babylon. We are today seeing one of the most remarkable movements which has ever swept over the face of the earth. To many of us, it is simply known as the ecumenical movement. It comes from the word, the Greek word, which means worldwide. Ecumenical means worldwide. The ecumenical movement, or the EM movement, is the ecclesiastical movement which is geared toward producing a one worldwide church. I give you the history of the ecumenical movement in your notes. I'm not going to take time to go through the history of it right now and tell you how it was formed, but it did come about in this very century. Since its beginning, the World Council of Churches, which started as strictly a Protestant movement in order to you know um, join all the divisions in the different denominations and bring the denominations back together. It started as a good thing, but they, could, they found out very quickly that they could not come together in unity based on doctrine, so they came together in a different kind of a unity, which was not a wholesome unity. Anyway, it was the World Council of Churches started strictly as a Protestant movement, but since its conception, it has embraced Roman Catholicism, and in 1970, it welcomed Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus as well into its fellowship. True born-again Christians, such as I hope all of us are, don't need a artificial ecumenical unity movement to unite us, as we see evidenced in this room. We are already one. We are one in Christ. Christians who truly know and truly love the Lord Jesus cannot and they should not unite in any fashion whatsoever with those who deny the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. And by far... The vast majority of men and women delegates to both the World Council of Churches and the National Council of Churches of the USA, which was formed in 1954 in Evanston, Illinois, which is the place of my birth, not 19. 19- Yeah, 1954. It's interesting that the World Council of Churches, by the way, was actually formed as an organization in 1948, the very year that Israel became a nation, that she was reborn as a nation. And I think that is very fascinating. I think it tells us clearly that we are in the end times. But we are not to join, unite in any fashion with those who do not hold to the cardinal doctrines of the faith, the Christian faith. And most of, I'd say the vast majority, if not almost all of the members of the World Council of Churches and the National Council Council of Churches deny the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They deny the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They deny um, that the Bible is God-inspired. They say it only can. It, it's written by men and through which God occasionally speaks and all kinds of heretical things that they believe, that they embrace. They believe that the Church of Jesus Christ is only one of God's many instruments to bring about a better human social order. Only one. That's not what the Lord Jesus Christ says, but that's what they say. He says, I am the way, doesn't he? They believe in kind of a cosmic Christ who speaks in all religions, and therefore they claim that a unity of all religions is the way to a new world order. How many times do we hear that expression, a new world order? The first and the main goal of the ecumenical movement is to bring all churches into one visible organization. They hope to bring all religions together by taking the best out of each one and thereby uniting the world into one great big happy family kind of the brotherhood of man idea you know let's all come together on the basis of love and this they claim will bring about the betterment of the world and universal peace most of those who are involved in this movement among you know they deny among many other important biblical doctrines they deny the second coming Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why they stress that it is up to a united church movement to bring peace to earth. The Lord isn't going to bring peace the church. The united church is. The united church with all other kinds of faiths and religions. Now the ecumenical movement is dedicated then to bringing all men together regardless of their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. However, this is not, I repeat, this is not the unity that the Holy Spirit teaches in the scripture. Martin Luther, of course, he was the great reformer of the Reformation. He once spoke these words that you see up here. He said, cursed be that love and unity for whose sake the word of God must be put to stake. Bishop Latimer who was put to death by being burned at the stake, said these words. He said, unity must be according to God's holy word, or else it were better war than peace. We ought never to regard unity so much that we forsake God's word. For many years, Bible students of prophecy have known that there was going to come Such an ecumenical, one-world church idea sometime in the last days. Now, how did they draw such a conclusion? One way was through the study of Revelation chapter 17. The amazing thing for you and I to realize is that we are living in the very day and age when movement toward a one-world religion is being realized faster than any of us probably know or understand or can keep pace with. The ecumenical one-world church idea is spreading its tentacles around the globe through the joint efforts of Protestants, Catholics, New Agers, Charismatics, and even some Evangelicals. The World Council of Churches now embraces other faiths, as I mentioned before, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, the Indian-type worship of American Indians, all other faiths without any consideration of doctrine whatsoever. Now, in Revelation chapter 17, we see a one-world false church described for us, and the description is not a very attractive one. This counterfeit church is seen symbolically as a very beautiful and seductive woman who really, under her pretentious mask, is nothing more than an ugly, ancient, adulterous whore. That's an ugly word, isn't it? I don't even like to say that word, but that's what God calls her. We're going to look at, first of all, the mask, her mask exposed. Then we will talk about the mystery explained. She's called Mystery Babylon. Then we will look at the monster that she rides upon, the monster examined and finally, how this mother will be extinguished. Now, it's perhaps a little, going to be a little helpful for us to understand as we read through this chapter that in verses 1 to 6, we have the actual vision that John saw of this woman riding upon the beast. That's the vision, verses 1 to 6. And then in verses 7 to 18, we are given the angel's interpretation of this vision. So as we look, first of all, at the mask exposed, the woman's mask exposed, we're going to look at her power, her position, her prosperity, and her persecution. So let's look. <laughs> We better run. <laughs> okay, let's look. We're going to look at her mask exposed. There we go. Let there be light. Thank you. All right. Um, and for this, we're going to look at verses... Uh, Well, her power. First of all, her power. Verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to jump over and read verse 15 because it interprets what is told to us in verse 2. So 1 and 2 and verse 15. John says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth have made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now to understand what the many waters are, look at verse 15 where he says, And he saith unto me, that's the angel saying unto John, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The Revelation 17 woman represents spiritual adultery, which means that although outwardly, And religiously, she seems to be joined to the true God, yet she is not faithful to this relationship. That's why she's called an adulterer. This adulteress. The symbolism of spiritual adultery is not generally used in the Bible for pagan nations, those which do not know the true God and the true Christ, or even pretend to. They are not referred to as adulteresses in the spiritual sense. It's rather used to speak of those who outwardly name the name of God and even name the name of Christ while they are actually worshiping and serving other gods. Israel, for example. Knew the true God, didn't she? She knew who he was. And yet she frequently turned to the worship of other gods, false gods. And so she is described many times in the scripture as a spiritual adulteress. The object of the Revelation 17 vision is that John is going to be shown the final judgment of this great harlot, which is Satan's counterfeit church. He is going to be shown the judgment of the apostate church of the end times. And this church will consist of all of the tares, all of the professing Christians only, from every one of those seven types of churches that we studied back in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Those who will be left behind after the rapture of all those who are members of the true church, the true body of Christ. These unsaved But professing Christians, quote-unquote, during the first part of the tribulation, will join hands not only with one another, but with the false religions of the world to form an ecumenical church, which is what the ecumenical movement today is attempting to do. But they're being hindered somewhat because of us, because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within the true body of Christ. After the rapture, The goal of the World Council of Churches and of the National Council of Churches of the USA and the the desire of many liberal Protestants and even, sad to say, a growing number of evangelicals to re-embrace Roman Catholicism and also the plan of the New Age movement to take in the whole brotherhood of man those goals and desires of these different organizations and movements is going to be realized. The worldwide influence of this harlot church is seen here in this scripture by the fact that she sits upon many waters. And what did the angel tell us? The interpretation of that phrase is in verse 15. He tells us that the waters represent peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So this shows us the global scope, the global influence of this harlot after the true church is removed. In verse 2 here, the angel told John that the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, with this harlot. And so we find that much of the harlot's power and authority as the ecumenical church of the tribulation will come as a result of her political alliance with kings, with leaders of nations and with the nations themselves. So there will be an unholy alliance between church and state. The false church will have an adulterous relationship with the world system, which is contrary to the position that the true church has. The Lord Jesus himself told us that his kingdom is not of this world. The true church is never to seek political power. The true church is never to surrender Christian principles for money or for honor or for power or position in this world. But in contrast, this great harlot church will be at the center of influence over this earth at least in the first half of the tribulation. And her doctrines and her views will have an intoxicating influence on the masses of people, as we see by the phrase where it says, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. You know, the most difficult people, I believe, in the whole world to reach for the Lord Jesus Christ Um, I'm not supposed to have that up yet, but the most difficult people to reach for Christ are those who have previously embraced false religion with all of its outward veneer of worship for God because these people think that they already know God and Christ. They are seduced by the harlot system with which they have committed fornication you know, spiritual fornication, and with which they have become intoxicated. These are the Lord's own words, fornication and intoxication. They have enjoyed her external rituals and her pageantries and the false feeling of security that they feel in her defiled bed. Many have entered into hell. Many Many, 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 I mean billions of people have entered hell because they have substituted religion for truth. You know, man would be far better off with just his divinely given instinct that God puts into every man's heart. He, he writes, eternity in the hearts of man. Man would be better off with just that God-given instinct to seek for truth than to have a religion which gives him a false security and which prevents him from seeking God unhindered by that religion so that he might find salvation freely by, by way of just his faith. So man would be far better off without religion. Christianity, you know, is not a religion. It's a relationship a personal relationship with the living God, religion is Satan's greatest tool to deceive men and to send them to hell. In verses 3 to 6 now, we get a vision of this woman as she's revealed to the world in all of her outward wealth and all of her pretentious beauty. But the Holy Spirit exposes her outward appearance as merely being a deceptive mask. Her true character, as we'll see, is blasphemous, abominable, filthy, and bloody. So we've looked at her power. Let's look at her position in verse 3. So he carried me away. Now, this is one of those vile angels. Carried John away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I, this is John, saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman's position here is that of being seated upon a scarlet-colored beast. And the beast is full of the names of blasphemy, and he has seven heads and how many horns? Ten horns. So without a lot of research, we can readily see that this beast is the same beast of Revelation 13, verse 1, who will be empowered by none other than the great red dragon, Satan himself. It's the Antichrist, then, ...who is seen supporting the harlot. The fact that she is on his back indicates that the Antichrist, at least initially, is going to support apostate Christendom. He's good at using religion. So he's going to use it, he's going to support it, just like he's going to allow the Jews, with their religion, to worship in the temple... ...for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. He will actually encourage this harlot system because he is going to use her for his own advantage as a power block to control and dazzle the masses of people. Perhaps it will even be this apostate church which will bring the world under his influence. The false prophet, as I mentioned, may be the leader of this big worldwide church and may actually be using the church to uplift the um, antichrist. Because the great whore, the harlot, sits on the back of the beast, this might also indicate that she, at least for a while, is in control. In other words, there may be a period of time during the first three and a half years of the tribulation when this false religious system, pretending to know God and Christ, will actually hold the reins and be in control of the Antichrist. However, once he rises to his place of power over that ten-nation revived Roman Empire, and once he's possessed by Satan himself, which occurs in the middle of the tribulation, the beast is going to turn on the harlot and utterly destroy her. So he will merely have used her for his own personal gain. But in the first half of the tribulation, Satan will definitely, definitely be working through the apostate church, both to prevent people from thinking that they need to be saved, because the apostate church will give them that false sense of security, and also he will use it to help the Antichrist rise to his place of power. To some extent, however, the Antichrist will be controlled by the harlot church for the first three and a half years. But her situation, as we just learned, is a very precarious one. And she will not realize it until it's too late. So her position will be just like that of the young lady from Niger. Have you heard about her? A smiling young lady from Niger took a ride on the back of a tiger. They came back from the ride with the lady inside and the smile on the face of the tiger. This will be the same end that the harlot church will have. And we'll talk about that later. Thank you. Was my nose dripping? Was I sniffing and I didn't even know it? Really? (laughs) Okay, let's look now at her prosperity in verse 4. It says in verse 4, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, And decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now, in this verse, we learn of the great wealth of this harlot church. We find that, first of all, she's arrayed in purple and scarlet color. And these colors not only associate her with the scarlet color of both sin and Satan. Remember, he's the great red dragon. But they're also the colors of wealth and ecclesiastical prosperity. We find that she's also arrayed in gold and precious stones and pearls so that she's seen outwardly as very, very rich and ornately beautiful. And anyone at all who is familiar with the trappings of ecclesiastical pomp today, especially among the high officials of both the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Churches, will immediately know and recognize how purple and scarlet and gold and jewels and pearls are associated with these religious systems. The ostentatious adornment of this adulterous harlot stands in stark contrast to the simplicity of the pious adornment of the chaste virgin, the true church, who is called not an harlot, but the bride of Christ. And she is found dressed simply in a pure white linen robe of righteousness. So there is a big contrast there. The deceptive mask of the harlot church makes her irresistibly attractive to great masses of people, many of whom are quite poor and worship her because of her wealth. So with a golden cup full of sparkling wine in her hand, her invitation has been offered to men for centuries, and many billions, literally billions, unfortunately, have been won By her allurements and consequently they have been deceived and they have been eternally lost by drinking from that extended hand and lying with her in her defiled bed of doctrinal deception. The cup she holds in her hand is a cup full of lies and abominations and her bed is a place of the filthiness of her fornications with Babylonianism and with spiritual wickedness, and the blood of the millions of God's saints whom she has murdered, as verse 6 tells us. Let's look at that, her persecutions in verse 6. We skip over 5, we'll get back to that in a minute. He says in verse 6, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now that word in the Greek, admiration, is not in a positive sense. It's more like he's saying he wondered with great amazement at this woman. Now as John took a deeper look behind the mask of this woman, he noticed that she was drunk with wine. Now, what made her so intoxicated? Well, he doesn't say with wine. He says he. Made, what made her intoxicated was actually the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ, who down through the ages she has taken, she has killed. Babylonianism has intoxicated herself on the blood of the prophets, the blood of the apostles, and the blood of millions of God's saints. It's Babylonianism, whether in its heathen forms before the first coming of Christ, or whether it's in its pretentious Christian forms since the first coming of Christ, it's Babylonianism which has put to death imprisoned, tortured, or burned at the stake or thrown to the lions more of God's people than any other ism that you can think of, including communism. For example, papal Rome has killed more of God's people in the Inquisition than, than pagan Rome ever did. But both systems, papal Rome and pagan Rome, Both systems have their roots in Babylonianism, which we will explain next, okay? Now you're wondering, what is Babylonianism? Let's look at the second part of our outline, which is the mystery explained. And for this, let's read verse 5. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. Now, by this point, I wouldn't blame you if you were asking, who exactly is this whore? What is her name? And in verse 5, we have the answer to those questions. Her name is actually a twofold name. First of all, she's called Mystery, and then secondly, she's called Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now, a mystery in the word of God always speaks of something that is a secret understood only by divine revelation. You know, the Apostle Paul spoke of the true church as a mystery because it was hidden in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets knew nothing about the church. They didn't know anything about it. Nobody did until the time of the writing of the New Testament. Well, the false church, the great harlot, the great whore, is also called a mystery. She was not divinely revealed until this 17th chapter of the book of Revelation. So, who is she now that she has been revealed to us? And the answer to that question is given in the second part of her name. She is Babylon the Great. The mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So her mystery name is revealed to us. She is Babylon the Great. And she is the mother of all other harlot and abominable abominable systems of religion. And this title for this woman launches us into a very interesting phase of Bible study, which is perhaps going to be new for some of you, but it is actually as old as the Tower of Babel itself. If we are going to understand the true nature of this woman, we need to understand something of her origin. So we need to understand Babylonianism. And that's what we're going to talk about now. Babylon in the scriptures refers not only to a city, but it refers to a twofold system as well. We're going to take a look at economical or material or commercial Babylon, whatever you want to call her, and its particular role in history and her future destruction at the end of the tribulation when we get to chapter 18. We'll learn about the first part of this system, or we could call it the second part, since God has it second, which is commercial Babylon. But today we're looking at ecumenical Babylon, which is the religious side of Babylonianism. So there's it's a two-fold system. There's the commercial and there's the religious, if you want to put it that way, or there's the maternal and the material, or the ecumenical and the economic. Today, we're going to talk about the religious side of Babylonianism. The first stage of the Babylonian religious system began in Babel. I'm going to call it Babel for a while, and then you'll understand why. Babel later grew to be the great city of Babylon, or Babylon as you know it. Nimrod was the world's first empire builder. You can read about him in Genesis 10 and 11. He taught men how to throw off their fear of God, and in their united rebellion against God, under Nimrod's leadership, they attempted to build both a city and a tower. Now, the city was a political union of earth's inhabitants. This is kind of the beginning of the commercial aspect of Babylon. Babylon. Whereas the Tower of Babel, or Babel, was their joint religious enterprise. It was their attempt to reach heaven by their own works. So Babel represents the unity of church and state. Babel involved the entire world, because at this point, everybody lived in that area. It involved the entire world in its attempt to elevate man to God's level by way of the religion of self-effort, you know, the works kind of religion. It was the first experiment of man to have a world government and a world religion joined as one. So disobeying God's way of salvation, which was through the sacrifice of animals and the shedding of blood, as was told to our first parents and exhibited through the proper sacrifice of Abel. You know, all these shed animals and the blood was anticipating the coming of the perfect Lamb of God, God the lord jesus christ when he would shed his blood for man's sins well disobeying that nimrod introduced an alternate approach to god with his false religious attempt to reach god his own way babel pronounced the way i'm saying it now babel actually means gate to god he was trying to get to god his way human pride has always resisted god's grace You know, pride does not like something free. Pride likes to work for what they get. The elevated tower of Nimrod was man's alternate approach to God. It was man's false religious attempt to reach God his own way. And we have seen a clear violation of God's word throughout all the ages ever since Babel. Copying the tower idea... False religions have made a common practice of building huge mounds, which are called ziggurats. You've seen them. Uh, The pyramids are an example of a ziggurat made out of sun-dried bricks to try to reach God. Babel's tower was likewise a forerunner of the towers in the high places that we read about in the Old Testament, which were dedicated to various heathen deities. Now, this tower idea continues today, in the tall, ornate cathedrals and the elevated altars and pulpits even of Protestant and Catholic churches as well as in the rituals and in the good works which religious men vainly imagine will help them to reach God, make them acceptable to God. It all began in Babel. And what did it lead to? It led to mass confusion because God intervened In man's proud project, by giving the workers different languages to speak so that they could not communicate with one another and thereby complete their ungodly project. So the city became known as Babel, which literally means confusion. That's why we talk about people babbling. It's confusion. But you see, in the end days... Man has got now back to, he's, he's undone what God did as far as language is concerned so that he can work together. Man can talk to one another in the same language just on the internet. You know, everybody's online and it's all, you can speak to each other in computer language. So man has undone what God did. So they will come together again in this building project. In the latter days, in the, the form the Harlot Church that we're talking about. Well, the second stage of Babylonianism originated with Nimrod's wife, Semiramis, her name was. And she was responsible for having founded the so-called Babylonian Mysteries, the mystery religions of Babylon, which consist of secret religious rites developed as a means of worshipping the idols of Babylon. Semiramis actually claimed, now this is really weird. I can't believe anybody believed it, but they did. She actually claimed to have been born miraculously. Uh, she said that she was hatched from a giant egg which fell from heaven to earth. I think I'd come up with something a little better than that. I wouldn't want to be, you know, thought of as a giant chicken. <laughs> But that's what she said, and people believed it. And by self-appointment, she then became the high priestess over the false religious system which she devised, of course, with Satan's help. When Nimrod, her husband, died, his death was greatly mourned by the people of Babel. And Semiramis, their high priestess, claimed that he had then become the sun god. Now, because of this, when she gave birth to a son whom she named Tammuz, T-A-M-M-U-Z, see it up here. She claimed that he too had been supernaturally conceived. I mean, she had to come up with something after she had a child after her husband died. So she said that this child had been supernaturally conceived by a sunbeam. You know, her her husband was the sun god, so he was conceived by a sunbeam. In fact, she claimed that he was actually Nimrod himself reincarnated come back to life. So she declared that Tammuz, her son, was the divinely promised seed of the woman that we read about in Genesis 3.15. She said he was the fulfillment of the promise given by God to Mother Eve, the one who would be the Messiah and the Savior of the world. So as early as Genesis 10 and 11, we already have false Christs on the scene. And Christ hadn't even been born yet. Well, supposedly, when Tammuz was 40 years old, he was pierced through by a wild boar when he was hunting. Remember, it says his father was a great, mighty hunter. Well, Tammuz was too, except I guess he wasn't quite as mighty because he was killed by a boar. Well, his mother then gathered together a group of virgins to pray and to mourn and to fast for Tammuz for 40 days. That was one day for each year of his life. After 40 days of mourning and prayer and fasting, it was claimed that Tammuz came back to life, which was nothing but Satan's first attempt at promoting a false resurrection of a false Christ, just as he's he's going to attempt to do again through the deception of the Antichrist and his false resurrection from the dead. Well, each year after this, in commemoration of Tammuz's supposed resurrection from the dead, the people of this Babylonian cult fasted and they prayed for 40 days. And during that time, they made little cakes upon which they put a T that looked like an X, a T, which stood for Tammuz. Now, this is not only where the whole idea of Lent originated, Lent has absolutely nothing to do with the true resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never find Lent in the scripture. It's where This is where Lent originated, but it is also where the idea of making hot cross buns at resurrection time originated. And we'll even read about these people in the Bible making their little hot cross buns. In the religion which developed... From the account of this false trinity, this is our first false trinity, we've got Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz. Now remember, she says, Semiramis said that Tammuz is is, uh, Nimrod, the father and the son are one. (laughs) Okay, not only was the father worshipped as the sun god, but also the male child was worshipped, and the mother, Simiramis, was worshipped most of all. In fact, she became known as the queen of heaven. She was the chief priestess through whom people prayed in order to reach her husband or her son, the sun god. You know, they're one and the same. Now, to commemorate and remember the queen of heaven, Semiramis, who had said that she was hatched from a giant egg, eggs were colored and they were decorated. And this system of idolatry spread from Babel to all the nations of the known world because it was from this location, remember, that men were scattered with their different languages. As they went across the lands, they took the worship of the mother and child cult with them. And they took the various mystery symbols of this religion with them as well, and the other idols. You know, I'm not giving you the whole story of Babylonianism. It's more complicated than this. I'm I'm trying to make it more simple. So traces of this Babylonian religion can be found in all of the ancient records of the different civilizations, of the world. The common elements found in the religions which have developed from Babylonianism are, first of all, they all have a priestly order which furthers the worship of the mother and the child, they all are involved in the sprinkling of holy water, and there is an order of virgins who are dedicated to service in the temple. In many of these religions which stemmed from Babylonianism, the virgins actually became sacred prostitutes. We've read about that when we were doing our study on the seven churches. Well, the Babylonian religions of the world, whether they're Roman or Greek, African, Indian, Chinese... uh, Whatever they are, they're always dressed in gold and precious pearls and stones and all kinds of expensive array. And they also use mystery and idolatry. Remember, this woman is called the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And harlotry speaks of spiritual adultery against the true God. And abomination speaks of idolatry. And this is exactly the form of religion the world over which Satan has used to Deceive men and lead them away from the true God and from the true Savior, the Lord Jesus. Furthermore, these Babylonian religions have unanimously been opposed to the true saints of God, and they have been responsible for the martyrdom of literally millions of them. Throughout the world, one can find both idolatrous statues and pictures, which are called icons. Of a mother holding her male child. And these have been in existence long before Christ was ever born. This is exactly what Queen Jezebel, remember she married weak Ahab, king of Israel. This is what she introduced into the nation of Israel. Jezebel was a Phoenician princess who was raised in the religion of Babylonianism. Her father was a priest in Babylonianism, and she introduced it into the worship of the true God when she married King Ahab. Now, you might say to yourself, no, you're wrong, Catherine. Jezebel did not worship Semiramis and Tammuz. She worshipped Baal and Ashtaroth." And you're absolutely right. Almost. In Phoenician, Tammuz's name is Baal. And in Phoenicians, Semiramis is known as Ashtaroth, or Astart, or Ishtar, which is where we get our name Easter, which is why I do not call this coming week- weekend Easter. I refer to it as Resurrection Day. Ishtar is where we get the name Easter. Easter has nothing to do with our Lord's resurrection. Well, Jezebel influenced Israel greatly with her Babylonian gods, for example, let's listen to what Ezekiel wrote when God, remember God, carried him away in spirit to see what was going on at the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. Here's what he saw. Ezekiel says, Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for, who do you think, Tammuz think I'm making this up? It's in the Word of God. Look at Ezekiel 8, 14. And Jeremiah talks about this worship, too. He tried to get the people to listen to him. He said, you're going to be punished by God severely if you do not stop worshiping the Queen of Heaven. Who were they worshiping? Semiramis. And it says in uh, uh, Jeremiah 44, verses 16 to 19, And also verse 25, he says over, and I'm not going to read that long passage, but he talks to them and he tells them, you need to, you know, stop worshiping the queen of heaven and making your little cakes to her, which is the little hot cross buns to Tammuz, I should say. And they refused. They said, no, when we worship the queen of heaven, everything went fine and dandy. And when we stopped worshiping her, we had all kinds of problems. Jeremiah tried in vain to convince the people that the reason that they were suffering the judgment of God was because of their abomination in worshiping these false gods. But they wouldn't listen, and they continued to worship the mother-child Babylonian idols. So when God had his fill, you know, I should put it up here because he's very long-suffering. When he had his fill of his very own people, the Jews, turning from him to this false religion of Babylonianism, guess where he sent them? Right smack to Babylon. Okay, you like the Babylonian gods so much, I'll give you your fill of them until you are so sick of them, you'll never want to have anything to do with them again. And that's exactly what happened after 70 years in Babylon. The Jews were sick of their gods, and they never, ever had this problem again to this day. And they won't be troubled by it in the end times either. They won't be part of this apostate system in the end times. Well, when Babylon, I am going to probably wind up keeping you a little overtime. so if some of you have to go, that's fine. But this is important, and I'm going to try to get it all on the table. When Babylon was overthrown by the Medo-Persians, the headquarters for Babylonianism was moved to, this is a trivia question, but let's see who might remember. Where was it moved to? Hmm? Yes, very good, Janie. It was moved to Pergamos. Do you remember in that third letter Christ wrote to the third church was the church of Pergamos. um, He said to that church, I know thy works and, oh, no wonder you knew it. (laughs) I always forget about that. Very good, Janie. (laughs) He said, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. He was talking to... uh, the the Pergamites, he said, even where Satan's seat is. So when the Medo-Persians took over Babylon, the new headquarters for Babylonianism became Pergamos. It was the seat of Satan because it was the new world headquarters for Babylonianism and this mother-child cult. Well, before very long, Babylonianism spread eastward and it spread westward. Other names for Simiramis became As I already told you, Ashtaroth or Astart or Ishtar, as well as Aphrodite, Ceres to the Greeks, Nana to the Sumerians, Venus or Fortuna to the Romans, Devaki or Icy to the uh, Indians, as well as Indrani. Um, Cybele to the Asians, she became known as Diana to the Ephesians, Isis to the Egyptians, Disa to the Scandinavians, Nutria to the Etruscans, Virgo-Patitura to the Druids, Hertha to the ancient Germans, and on and on. She had many names. And Tammuz also had names besides Baal. He was known, for one example, as Krishna, as well as Horus, H-O-R-U-S. And by the way, I've told you before, but the HIS, it's on the, uh, the wafers in Roman Catholicism, and it's even on some, I think it's on the bottom of the communion plates we found it in there. That stands for Isis, Horus, and Seb, and that's the Babylonian Trinity. And that's sad that it, we carried over even into Protestantism. Well, in time, Babylonianism moved its headquarters from Pergamos, now who knows where, to the city of, you know, say it, say it louder, I can't hear you, to Rome, the city of Rome, the city of seven hills upon which the woman, mystery Babylon, yet to this day sits. A pontiff was made the head of the Babylonian priesthood. And eventually, the Roman emperor was made the Pontifex Maximus of the Babylonian order. So Satan had succeeded in uniting the Roman Empire, the state, with the Babylonian religious system, an unholy alliance of state and uh, church. When Emperor Constantine—now, some of this is review. We did this when we did this study of Pergamos and Thyatira. In uh, 1313, when Constantine forced the Roman Empire to become Christian— In order to make Christianity appeal to the pagans, you know, to get them to come to church, much of Babylonianism was mixed into the church. And we did talk a lot about this. If you weren't here, get those tapes. We have a a little mini-series called What Christ thinks of Roman Catholicism, and it's on these two churches. Well, the statues of the Babylonian mother and child cult were simply now given two new names. Now they were called Mary and Jesus. Mary was highly exalted by Rome, and eventually she was given the title Queen of Heaven. People were encouraged by the church to pray for her so that she, on their behalf, could get the attention of her son. In fact, the Church of Rome, since that time, has declared Mary to also be virgin-born, to have been sinless, to have been bodily resurrected to heaven, and she is even now being declared as a co-redemptrix with Christ. But the Mary worshipped by Romanism is none other than the Semiramis of Babylonianism. She's not the humble Mary of the Bible. The sign of the cross, which I did thousands of times as a child. You go from your forehead to your, down to your heart, from your right shoulder to your left shoulder. Right to left, yeah. That's the sign of the cross. This has its origin in the mystic Tau, T-A-U. It's a letter of the uh, Egyptian alphabet, and it comes from the initial of the name Tammuz. Lent, as I said, was decreed by the Roman Church for the observance of Easter in 519 A.D. But as I told you, there is no precedence for Lent in the early Christian church. It comes from Babylonianism, as also does the idea of celibacy for monks and for nuns, the idea of confession to a priest, the prayer beads... The rosary, purgatory, infant baptism, prayers for the dead, the lighting of candles, and many other non-Christian practices of the Church of Rome, and some of them of the Orthodox Church as well, have been carried, a lot of these things have also unfortunately been carried over into Protestantism. Not all of them were eliminated with the Reformation. And we talked about that as well when we went into the Church of Sardis. The Roman Church today is simply a Christianized form of Babylonian mysticism, which has many things in common with other derivative religions of Babylonianism. Both the Buddhists and the Hindus, for example, also have a celibate priesthood. Mystery, darkness, incense burning, superstition, a priesthood, nuns, sprinkling, Idolatry, prayers for the dead, all of these and many other Babylonian customs appear in religions like Roman Catholicism all over the world. The Chinese prayed for the dead years and years before Christ was even born. One cannot go anywhere in the world if you have traveled at all. You won't go very far without sooner or later being confronted by some semblance of Babylon the Babylon religious system of idolatry. No system has enslaved more people than this terrible religion because it's not only brought them into a situation of superstitious ignorance, but it has also darkened their understanding so that it's very difficult for them to even grasp the simple plan of salvation, which is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Catholicism is the form of Babylonianism which has infiltrated Christendom. And the Vatican, sitting as it does on its seven hills, will be the headquarters and the leader of the ecumenical mystery Babylon church of the tribulation period. We have to remember that the woman of this chapter is called a great whore which indicates spiritual adultery. And this means that she claims a relationship to God and to Christ, but she is not faithful to that claim, having turned instead to other gods. The Roman Church and liberal Protestantism, joined together with the false gods of all the other religions, are going to fit this description. In the last days. Actually, it's already a very appropriate description for much of Christendom today. And certainly it's an apt description of both the World Council of Churches and the National Council of Churches, which have played the harlot with God. Now, I do have some recommended books of study. If you want to know more about this, one is called, and I've told you about this before, The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. You don't need to write it down. I put this in your notes. Another one is called Babylon Mystery Religion by Ralph Woodrow. And one I highly recommend is A Woman Rides the Beast by David Hunt. Let's look now at the monster examined. And for this, we'll read verses 7 to 14. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, that's the Antichrist, and is of the seventh. He comes out of the seventh revived Roman Empire. And he will go to perdition and go with into perdition. Eventually the Antichrist will be thrown into the lake of hell. the the lake of fire and the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet now this is the ten nation revived roman empire i'm telling you this because i may not have time to explain some of these things but received power as kings one hour with the beast okay at the end you know for a short period of time they will reign with the beast the revived roman empire of ten nations These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. They'll all be agreed to give all their power and strength to the Antichrist. These shall make war with the Lamb and the Lamb shall overcome them. Why? Is it because he's mightier? Yes, because he, not the beast and not the beast kingdom, he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And they that are with him, this speaks of us as the church, the true church, we are called and chosen and faithful. Isn't that a wonderful name? I thought this neat because there's a Trinitarian name for the true church. Just as we have this false trinity, you know, Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz. And now you and I, as the true church, are referred to as called, chosen, and faithful. I love those three words for us. And I hope we can live up to them, at least the faithful part. And he said unto me, the waters, or we already read that, the waters which I saw us, where the whore sitteth, our peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's her global influence. And verse 16 And the tent, no, I'm not going to read that yet. That's when we talk about the mother extinguished. okay, here the um, angel, I'm really trying to talk fast. I see Kathy up there. Tell her it's going to be a little bit. Did you? Is she still up there? The angel asked John why he marveled and why he wondered as he did in amazement, which is, you know, uh, it says admiration, but it's really amazement there, after seeing the woman. Well, instead of waiting for an answer from John, the angel then proceeds to reveal to John the identity of the beast on which the woman is sitting. Now, according to verse 8, he is the one which was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And there's no problem at all in identifying this beast with the beast of Revelation chapter 13, who is the, say it, Antichrist. In this chapter, he is seen in conjunction with his empire, the ten nation um, revived Roman Empire, and he he is seen coming out of the bottomless pit or the abyss. That speaks of his connection with Satan, and the fact that we saw him coming out of the water in chapter 13 that connects him, you know, with mankind. So this human being, the Antichrist, is going to be um, what we could call the devil man. You know, we have the God man, the Lord Jesus. Now we have the Antichrist, who is the devil man. When Christ comes at his second coming, this devil man will go to perdition. He will go into the lake of fire where where he will remain for all of eternity. Amen. So what we really have here wrapped up in one statement in verse 8 is a reference to the beast, to his revived Roman Empire, and also to the satanic power which is behind it all. This satanic empire under the rule of the Antichrist is going to come to life and the whole world of the unsaved, those who do not have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they are going to stand in amazement and in wonder at this. Now, in contrast, verse 9 tells us that those who are spiritually minded, in other words, those whose names are written in the book of life, they are going to have wisdom. Godly, divine-given wisdom to determine the identity of the beast before he is openly identified to the world. The one with divine wisdom, you see, is going to be given a clue, is already given a clue right here in this chapter to recognize the beast's kingdom and the corrupt religious system which sits upon this beast. Now, we'll all... I mean, we won't, but the people living at that time who have spiritual discernment will know the beast because he's going to sign a false peace treaty with Israel. Here's another clue so that they will know who the beast is. It tells us in... um, uh, I forget the verse. Where is it? 9, right. In verse 9, that the seven heads of the beast which we also saw back in Revelation 13:1, as well as in verse 3 of this chapter, are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now, there's only one city which for more than 2,000 years has been known as the city on seven hills, and that city is Rome. Even the Catholic encyclopedia says this, quote, It is within the city of Rome, called the City of Seven Hills, that the entire area of Vatican State proper is now confined. End of quote. Now, Rio de Janeiro, where I went on my honeymoon, is also built on seven hills. However, it did not exist at the time John wrote the book of Revelation. And furthermore, there would be no reason to accuse Rio de Janeiro of being um, a spiritual whore, of, of committing spi- spiritual fornication, because she has never made any claim of having a spiritual relationship with God. Now, Jerusalem has made that claim because it's true she does have a special spiritual relationship with God. But Jerusalem does not sit on seven hills. There's only one city which fits the bill, and that's Rome. The Roman Church has made claim to be the worldwide headquarters for Christianity. Ever since her beginning, since the Roman church's beginning. And she has maintained that claim to the present day. Her pope claims to be the exclusive earthly representative of God. He claims to be the vicar of Christ. Even the confraternity Roman Catholic version of the Bible says this about Revelation 17.9. This is what it says. The Catholic Bible. Babylon here refers to Rome. So I'm not telling you anything that they wouldn't tell you. So it's clear that Rome will be at the center of the ecumenical movement of mystery Babylon. And those with godly wisdom will know this and they'll be able to recognize the beast, the Antichrist, by his initial support of Rome. This guy's going to be buddy-buddy with who do you think? the Pope. So Nimrod's dream for a one-world religion will come to fruition in the last days with the help of the beast and his empire. However, that dream will be very short-lived. I'm going to skip over um, some of this that we've already talked about, about what the ten heads and the seven horns represent that's in your notes, but let's look at how the mother will be extinguished in verses 16 to 18. It says, "...and the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire." For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. There is coming a time when the Antichrist will destroy the pseudo-Christian religious system which during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, he is going to support for his own selfish purposes. Her destruction will most likely occur sometime in the middle of the tribulation period when the Antichrist is possessed by Satan himself. Satan will be finished using the Babylonian system of false religion as his means to damn men to hell because he will finally have gotten himself a better tool in the last three and a half years. Who is he going to use? He's going to use the charismatic personality of the Antichrist and he's going to use the seemingly meek but persuasive powers of the false prophet in order to then bring men's souls to hell. So the Antichrist, in the middle of the Tribulation, will not only break his covenant agreement with Israel, but he's also going to break his relationship with the apostate church. His hatred against this great harlot, who pulled his reins, so to speak, during the first three and a half years, will become evident by his utter destruction of her First of all, I mean, he's going to be jealous of the attention that she has been getting from the masses of people. So he hates her, but he's just been pretending, you know, to like her. Suddenly, he's going to just totally turn on her. First of all, he's going to strip her totally of all her fine riches and her adornments. He's going to take away her gold and her precious jewels and her pearls and her purple and her scarlet attire and her elaborate cathedrals and her churches and her billions of dollars in monetary worth. He's going to do that just as she has robbed multitudes of people of both their money with her false services and how she has robbed their eternal souls with her phony, phony doctrines. And then, as she, for centuries, has literally claimed to eat the flesh of Christ in her mysterious ritual of transubstantiation, which is the heretical doctrine that teaches that the bread and the wine actually become the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, just like she has done that, claimed to eat Christ, the Antichrist is going to devour her flesh. And as she has burned at the stake millions of God's saints, the Antichrist is going to burn her with fire. The Satan-possessed Antichrist is going to destroy the apostate church for his own personal selfish reasons so that he may establish himself as the god to be worshipped alone. However, God is really the one who is destroying the false church. And that's made clear to us in verse 17. The destruction of the great whore will be in perfect accord with the will of God. He is just merely going to be using the Antichrist and using Satan to accomplish his judgment on this great whore, this system that has been around ever since the Tower of Babel. This is a picture, by the way. I have this in your notes. I didn't have time to talk about it, but they did make a commemorative postage stamp back in 1984 to depict this new United States of Europe. And wouldn't you know that on one of the postage stamps there is a woman riding the beast. Amazing. They also had a poster made which has an unfinished Tower of Babel on it, and above it are 12 stars. And those stars are not your normal stars. They are the inverted star, which is the sign of the goat, which is uh, the goat of Mendez, or Baphomet. It's a sign of Satan. And that's on their own poster. It's, it's just amazing. So it's going to be God's ultimate will to destroy the entire Babylonian system of religion. The ecumenical movement under the false umbrella of Christianity is seeking to embrace all religions. And this is going to be destroyed by God himself. This false church will not only consist of Roman Catholicism, don't just think I'm talking about Rome, it's going to consist of Rome, yes, but also of all apostate Protestantism, both of which will come together and willingly embrace, as the World Council of Churches already does, those of other faiths as well, regardless of doctrine. It will be one worldwide hodgepodge of religions, which can all trace their background, their um, origin back to Babylonianism in one form or another. Now, in conclusion, what is our responsibility? as members of the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is our responsibility with regard to the Babylonian system of false religion that we see all around us? And what is our responsibility to the ecumenical movement, which is now moving at a rapid pace toward a one-world religion, even now as we sit here? Well, our responsibility, according to the Word of God, 1 Corinthians six seventeen is to come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. This involves some deep soul searching, doesn't it? I left a church because I found out that it was supporting the World Council of Churches and the National Council of Churches and that my tithes were being used to support an organization such as that, which is dedicated to undoing Christianity, really. It doesn't stand for the, the fundamentals of the Christian faith. We, as the true Church of Christ, are not to associate, associate ourselves in any way with Mystery Babylon and with all of her harlot offshoots. We are not to be seduced by those who would tell us that doctrine is not important, Yes, it is. Doctrine is very important. We should not be seduced by the Evangelical and Catholics Together movement, which has, I could give you names of people who have signed that and you'd be horrified to bring undo the Reformation and bring Evangelicals and Catholics back together. And we should not be seduced by those who would also bring in Buddhists and Mormons and Muslims telling us that all have the same God and therefore we should forget our differences and embrace one another in love. We should not be swayed by the New Age Hinduistic teaching, which says that we who say Jesus Christ is the only way to God are intolerant in our teaching. And we are the ones who are preventing the whole world from entering into a new era of enlightenment where all men can find their potential godhood. They've already got their reason. They're going to tell the world when we disappear at the rapture, they've got a reason already established for what's going to happen to us. We're of a lower race consciousness, and we're going to be taken into captivity in a spirit world where we can be reprogrammed. And then when we think the way they they do, we can be reprogrammed reincarnated and brought back so we are not in other words we are not to put our hands on a single brick which attempts by any human effort to build its own tower to god every system of religion apart from the christianity of the bible The Christianity of salvation by grace through faith alone is a part of the Tower of Babel, and it should not be supported nor should it be sanctioned by true believers. God is, He hates this system, and He is going to utterly destroy it. This humanistic tower of confusion. And He's going to use the Antichrist and His kingdom to do that. The Lord is very serious about Mystery Babylon. As a matter of fact, in the church, the letter to the church of Thyatira, he called these things the depths of Satan. Do you remember that? He's serious about her wicked influence in corrupting his church, and he is going to deal very harshly with her. And therefore, it behooves you and I to stay clear of any compromise whatsoever with her. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said these very profound words he said you cannot have unity without forsaking truth and to forsake truth for the sake of unity is to betray Jesus Christ so may we be wise in keeping ourselves pure and in keeping ourselves undefiled until our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, comes. Lord Jesus Christ comes. I, I, that's my prayer that we would not compromise in any way with this great whore.